Hello Skywatchers, thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Dara. And I'm Greg. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in June in our Cosmic Diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. Now this month marks the peak of the sun's path through our sky with the summer solstice on the 21st, after which the sun will begin its long descent into the winter months. Unfortunately, this means that this month comes with its own unique challenges for astronomy. While the sun may be high in the daytime sky, at night it only just drops below our horizon. Because of this, there are actually very few nighttime hours, and most of those are in twilight. This means it only briefly gets truly dark, making observing faint objects all the more difficult. On top of this, the ecliptic, the line that the sun traces across our sky, is also the approximate path of the other major objects in our solar system, including the moon and the planets. So while the sun just drops below our horizon, the others only just rise above it, making them even harder to see. However, it's not all doom and gloom. The fairer weather conditions compared with winter mean we still have a great chance to see some exciting things in our night sky. Now the moon begins this month in its waning gibbous phase, having just reached full moon on the 29th of May. It begins rising in our sky around 11pm on the 1st of June, right next to the bright planet Saturn, and remains visible until sometime after the sun rises the following morning. And by the 12th, the moon, now in its thin waning crescent phase, passes close to the deep orange star Aldebaran in Taurus. This star is halfway along the path from the belt of Orion onto the Pleiades. This Pleiades cluster of bright young stars makes an excellent eye test for the naked eye observer, with seven stars being the number to beat. With the moon close to its new phase and well out of the way in the sky, the middle of the month is the best time to try and observe faint objects in our sky. Looking towards the east, you'll catch the three bright stars that make up the summer triangle, Vega in Lyra, Deneb in Cygnus, and Altair in Aquila. This popular asterism surrounds a portion of the faint light of our galaxy, the Milky Way. In areas far from city light pollution, you should be able to catch its trail running from the northern horizon through these three stars and on to the southern horizon. However, in particularly good conditions, you might just notice a break in its trail leading from the summer triangle southwards. Known as the Great Rift, here distant clouds of dust and gas are blocking our view of the faint light of the billions of stars of the Milky Way. Now just before the moon comes to its full phase again, on the 27th, Saturn reaches its opposition when it is both directly opposite the sun in the sky and is closest to the Earth. With a decent pair of binoculars, you'll be able to see that the object you were looking at is not the standard circle shape of a planet. But with a small telescope, this shape will sharpen into the stunning rings that surround the planet. Made of tiny pieces of ice and rock, the rings are tens of thousands of kilometres across, but only about 10 metres thick. If that's not enough, throughout this month, Jupiter is clearly visible in the sky, 
And looking towards the west just after the setting of the sun, you might just spot the evening star, otherwise known as the planet Venus. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to at ROGAstronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But now, it's time for our cosmic news. Okay, welcome to the cosmic news part of our podcast. Every month, Dar and I choose two different stories, one each, uh, that we have noticed in the news recently and that we think are particularly interesting. We present them to you and you get the chance to vote on which one is your favourite. So, Dara, what have you got for us this time? Okay, I quite like this story. Number one, because I love pasta, and this is vaguely related (laughs) to pasta. So scientists have shown why Saturn's small inner moons formed into ravioli shapes. So you might be aware that last year, when the Cassini probe uh, was uh, feeding back some of its data, we got these images of its moons Pan and Atlas, and they looked incredible. They looked nothing like the moons we have. They looked like flying saucers or ravioli. Very very peculiar shapes. They were. Not edible, of course. No. Um, Unfortunately. But Pan is actually the innermost moon of Saturn. It was discovered back in the 1990s, um, but Cassini gave us close-up views in 2017. So the Cassini probe, a probe orbiting around Saturn for 13 years, provided a complete insight into not only its moons, (laughs) its rings, uh, and much, much more. And like you said, it's a really weird moon. It looks nothing like we've seen before. Um, But Pan is actually what we call a moonlet. So it's Uh, a small moon found in the inner ring system of Saturn. Uh, And there are a few of these that are actually dotted and found within the rings orbiting around the planet. Um, So Pan is actually found in Saturn's A-ring, which is, if you've ever looked at Saturn through a telescope, you see what looks like two thick bands. So you've got the inner band that looks like, uh, that's called the B-band or the B-ring, and then the outer one is actually called Saturn's A-ring. So Pan is actually found in the gap in Saturn's A-ring, and this gap is actually called the Enk Gap. Um, And Pan is actually named after uh, a god of shepherds in Greek mythology, and that's because Pan acts like a shepherding moon. So it's clearing or keeping clear that Enk Gap in Saturn's rings. And it does this because if we imagine um, this little moonlet, it's orbiting in the rings uh, anti-clockwise. If there's any material uh, in that same gap behind Pan, it's also moving anti-clockwise, but it's being sped up by Pan. It's being pulled by its gravity. And so it gains energy, and that material is flung out into the outer gap, uh, the outer parts of that gap. And vice versa, if there's any material uh, in front of Pan as it's orbiting around, it will pull it back. It will decelerate this material. And so it falls uh, closer into a closer orbit around Saturn. So basically, Pan acts like a shepherding moon. Yeah. Um, but there's also Atlas. Atlas is another moonlet. This one was discovered in 1980. Uh, but again, Cassini gave us brilliant views of this moon in 2017. This moon is actually found right on the outer edge of Saturn's A-ring. So it's not found in the gap. Atlas is actually named after uh, Atlas the Titan, who held up the sky above the Earth. Similarly, Atlas uh, is kind of seen to hold up Saturn's rings above its shoulders. Uh, So very nicely named. But it is another ravioli-shaped moonlet. Uh, Now, it's Martin Rubin, an astrophysicist at the University of Bern. He was puzzled by the images that Cassini gave us. So he saw Pan and Atlas looking like these flying saucers, and he wanted to work out why they looked like they did. Um, We saw them with these kind of large bulbous centers, and then they had these ridges around the outside. Um, And both those moons are quite small. They're only about 30 kilometers across. 
So he worked with his colleague, Adrian Leilu, and they began calculating the formation process of these moonlets. So again, we're using computer simulations. We can't go out there to the moon. We can't physically, uh, as such, recreate it. So they use computer models to do this. And when we think about Saturn and these moonlets, the conditions are actually quite special. They're very close to Saturn. They're some of the most innermost moons. They're found within the ring system. But Saturn is uh, about 95 times more massive than the Earth. And these moons are found well within half the distance that the moon is to the Earth. So they're incredibly close. They feel Saturn's gravity, its tidal forces much, much more. And so they uh, kind of assumed and um, predicted that these moons or these little moonlets couldn't have actually formed from accretion. Saturn has an enormous tug and pull and it deforms all the pieces very close to it that accretion, small pieces kind of gathering together, were not going to be held together. So an alternative model they came up with is something called uh, the pyramidal regime. So what it suggests is that moonlets form from a series of similar sized objects colliding into each other. So in the case of Pan, we would assume they are two similar sized objects, each half the mass of Pan and then coming together. Now the great thing about the computer models they've come up with is they near perfectly match the shapes that we see with Cassini. So the models they've created and when they run those models, they see almost exactly the same thing as we see through these massive telescopes we have in space. Um, the simulations could also explain uh, why the ridges on Pan and Atlas look slightly different. So if you look at the center, it looks more cracky and the outsides look much more smoother. And that's because the ridges are actually made of smooth material that actually got squeezed out when the two pieces collided together. I like to think of this as like, a, I don't know, like a creamy biscuit with two biscuits on the top, some creamy filling in the middle, and if you squash them together, the cream kind of oozes out. It's all about food today, isn't it, Greg? Mm, Pasta absolutely. and biscuits. Mm. So they kind of, uh, the models help not only explain their shape, but also uh, why we see slightly different structures around them. So the, the crack-like core, but the smooth ridges around the outside. Now, these computer models, they ran for different inclinations. So we could talk about objects colliding head-on, or we could talk about them colliding at different angles. What they found is that... Um, Close to head-on collision, so when you've got two objects impacting kind of face-to-face, -face, you get uh, shapes that look like Pan and Atlas, these ravioli shapes. If you have something that's more of an oblique angle, so something like 5 to 10 degrees of a, an impact angle, you get something that more looks like, um, if you've ever seen the German pasta, Spatzli, I don't know if I've pronounced that correctly, <laughs> but it's much more longer, it's not ravioli shaped. Uh, and that actually resembles the 90 kilometer long moon Prometheus. So these models are not only explaining the ravioli shaped moons, they're also explaining the long shaped moons around Saturn too. Now they've based it on the current orbit and the environmental conditions we might have uh, around Saturn in its rings. They estimated that the impact velocities are about 10 meters per second. So pretty fast, but we're not talking about extreme speeds there. And they simulated a whole range of impact angles and they found it's only when you have an angle of impact of less than 10 degrees do you get something that's stable. If the impact angle is more than 10 degrees, those shapes become very irregular, almost like um, Comet 67P, the Rosetta mission, that yes. duck-shaped comet. Yes, yes, Something yes. like that around Saturn would have just been torn apart by Saturn's tidal uh, forces. And so you don't find moon shapes like that around Saturn. 
Now, the head-on collisions aren't as rare as you think either. How is it possible to get two things colliding almost head-on? In Saturn's rings, they're quite probable. And that's because, um, like we explained uh, in our Cosmic Diary, Saturn's rings are extremely thin. All that material is actually pretty much in the same plane. And so uh, the impact angles are going to be a very little uh, shallow or small angles. So they explain those shapes, but the last thing it does is also explain why Ipetus looks the way it does. So Ipetus is Saturn's third largest moon. And I think it looks a bit like a bath bomb. So on, whether you've been to these uh, kind of boutique shops or not, Greg, uh, these bath bombs come in kind of circular shapes, but they have like a, a small ridge around the yeah. center where they've joined the two halves. Yes. Ipetus looks a bit like that, but it's not a perfect circle. It's more of an oblate shape. So um, a kind of squashed sphere, but it still has that little ridge shape around the center. And scientists have been puzzled about why it has a shape like this, but using their computer model that they've got, they simulated two equal sized pieces, each half the mass of Ipetus, uh, in a head-on collision, and lo and behold, it produced the shape of Ipetus. It produced this oblate shape with a thin ridge around the center. Mm. So not only is their model helping us understand how Saturn's small inner moonlets formed, it's actually helping us uh, determine how some of its larger moons could have formed too. So that's my story for this month, Greg. It's a rather short one, but I think everyone who is interested in the Cassini mission will have seen these images of Saturn's moons pan in Atlas. And it is incredible that we now know pretty much how they probably are likely to have formed. Um, and hopefully this computer model might be able to help us uh, simulate how Saturn's other moons might have formed too. Excellent. So there we are, that's my story. Uh, I want to hear what your one is this month, though, Greg. I'm quite excited because I got a little hint of what your story is about. Uh, so hit us with it. What, what have you chosen this month? So about a month ago, um, as we record this now, uh, a vast catalogue of data was released to the um, astronomy community and to the public at large as well. Um, this was the second data release of the uh, phenomenally uh, impressive uh, instrument Gaia which is uh, an ESA mission, so a European Space Agency mission, um, with the aim of surveying about 1% of the stars in our galaxy, which doesn't sound like a lot, but that's over a billion stars. Um, so, fairly impressive. It's mapping uh, a much larger you know, part of our sky than any other kind of satellite telescope has done before. Exactly, absolutely. Um, so... As I said, the main mission of Gaia is to attempt to survey uh, our surroundings, a vast fraction of the, the, the stars inside our Milky Way galaxy. But when it comes down to it, there are actually quite a lot of missions out there which are attempting to survey the sky, whether from the ground or from space. The difference between them and this one is that this one attempts to do it in three dimensions rather than just in two. So it is attempting to determine how far away these objects are as well as where they are in the sky. Um, and it does that using a method called parallax. Um, believe it or not, we're actually all familiar with parallax even if we don't realise it. Um, that is, it's how objects will appear to move um, against more distant objects as we move from side to side. So uh, if you put your arm in front of you with your thumb sticking up mm -hmm. and then look at it with one eye, 
and then switch to looking at it with the other eye and then just rapidly switch forwards and backwards between those two eyes, the thumb will appear to move against the background of distant objects. And we can use that effect if you know how long the distance is, in this case, between your eyes, and you know the angle that the, the object is appearing to move against those distant objects, then you can work, a, work out how far away that object is. And that's the method that uh, Gaia is using. The difference here is that the object it's measuring isn't a thumb, it is a, a star in the relatively close by parts of our galaxy, depending on what sort of um, object they're looking at, against more distant background objects, which are very distant stars or even galaxies out in the background. Um, and instead of just shifting from one eye to the other, Gaia is using the entire orbit of the Earth. In fact, more than that, because it's actually slightly further out from uh, the Sun than the Earth. So it uses the entire Earth's orbit, about six months between each image, in order to produce its view of the sky. So let's get this straight. So you've got very, very distant objects in the back, things like galaxies or very distant stars, yeah. and they don't really appear to move when far we too go far from yeah. one side of the Earth's orbit to the other. Correct. But these closer stars, yep. when we jump from one half of the year to the other in the yep. Earth's orbit, will appear to kind of do this hopping from one point to the other. Exactly. So we can only really use parallax for close stars. We only use really them. for close things, right. absolutely. Parallax makes up the first, what we call, rung of something called the distance ladder. Uh, and the distance ladder is a way that uh, astronomers have used to determine the distances out to more and more distant objects. But because we can't use parallax out to the most distant things, what we have to do is we start with parallax to relatively close by things, and then we use uh, something which scales with distance with those in order to go to more distant galaxies, and then we use that to calibrate the next scheme, and so on and so on. Which means that every method up the, up the ladder is dependent on the method that came before it. Which means if you improve the distance measurements within our own galaxy using parallax, you improve the distance measurements of everything in astronomy. That sounds like a very good plan. Yeah, absolutely. So it's very, very important, very important mission. On that note, actually, if anyone is interested, we actually have an animated video called Measuring the Universe, and you can find it with all of our other animated videos answering some of the biggest questions in space, and you can find them on Vimeo. Uh, so if you type vimeo.com, search for Royal Observatory Greenwich, you'll find a whole host of our different videos there. Absolutely. Gaia is attempting to measure all of the stars down to something called 20th magnitude. Now, for those not familiar with the, the magnitude system, it's a way of determining how bright something is. The brighter an object is, the smaller the number of ma the, the magnitude is. Um, the fainter it is, the higher the magnitude is. It's like having a, an Olympic podium of, of stars. So the third magnitude stars are fairly bright. The first magnitude stars are much, much brighter. And this method can even go to, to negative numbers as well. So zero and minus one are even brighter than first magnitude stars. To give you some idea of the, the how bright different things are, Sirius, the brightest star in the night sky, is about magnitude minus 1.5, give or take. Uh, the sun is minus 27, very bright indeed. Uh, and the human eye can see down to about sixth magnitude. Gaia uh, can therefore see, uh, so it sees down to magnitude 20, uh, 
And because of the way that the magnitude system works, every time you shift by 2.5 magnitudes, you change your brightness by a factor 10. So if you have two objects two and a half magnitudes apart, that's 10 times fainter. If two objects are five magnitudes apart, that's 100 times fainter, and so on and so on. So Gaia can see things down to a million times fainter than our eyes. That's really take. sensitive. Really, really, really faint, absolutely. It has measured over the course of the last few years uh, 1.7 billion stars in uh, how bright they are and where they are in the sky um, and has measured distances for them for about 1.3 billion. So that comes to about 1% of our galaxy, just a little less. So pretty good. However... I knew that was coming. Yeah, so that's just the main mission. There are a lot of things of secondary science, side science, that you can do with this sort of thing. And there's a lot of stuff that's come from the primary mission, but there's all sorts of stuff from the secondary mission as well. Um, one thing that it can do is, if it can look down to magnitude 20, then it can look down to very, very faint objects, which means that it can look out to distant galaxies, and even to... Da -da, feeding supermassive black holes. Yay, <laughs> Yay they're back again. Um, and in fact, it has found one. Uh, a number, in fact, but one in particular. We're looking at it as it was about 12 billion years ago. So a very, very long way away. It is about 20 billion times the mass of the sun. Oh. So it's a very, very big one. But it's also the fastest growing supermassive black hole ever discovered. It's growing at about 1% of its mass every million years, which doesn't sound very fast until you realise that's the equivalent of eating the sun every two days. This is one greedy black hole. It's a very greedy black hole, absolutely. But you can do more with Guy than even that. It's not just taking two images, one on either side of the, the, the Earth's um, orbit, it's taking lots and lots of images, which means that you can track changes in the sky. Uh, one thing that you can do is you can try to find supernovae. So these are the bright deaths of massive stars that will appear in one image but won't be in the next one, or wasn't in the one before it. Um, and it has found a number of those. But what it can also do is it can track how stars are moving across the sky as well. Because it turns out stars in our galaxy are moving around, they have their own speeds, they're not all travelling in the same direction at the same rate. And... Some of them are very, very fast. In fact, it has found a few uh, white dwarfs, which are the cause of dead sun-like stars, sort of medium and small mass stars, that are travelling at 3.5 million kilometres per hour. That's just a number, but that means that it could travel the distance from the Earth to the sun in less than two days, which is exceptionally fast. Um, and it's far, far faster than almost anything else in our galaxy. Uh, these hypervelocity stars have been known about for a while, but we haven't been certain exactly where they're coming from and why they exist. Um, Gaia appears to have solved that problem, at least for a few of them, uh, by tracing back where that star must have come from, by tracing back its path through the sky, um, realising that one of these white dwarfs has actually come from a supernova remnant. So an exploding star remnant. That means that what happened was this. This particular white dwarf was actually part of a binary system. Two different white dwarfs flying round one another. The white dwarf that is flying off at high speed 
triggered a supernova in the other one. There are different ways that it can do that. They're, they're all quite complicated, but there are ways for stars to trigger supernovae in other stars. A supernova happened, blew up its companion. The, uh, the other white dwarf survived the explosion, but got flung out into deep space at extremely high speeds. Right. In fact, it's traveling so fast that the gravity of the Milky Way galaxy can't hold on to it. Is this star going to fly out of our galaxy? Yes. <laughs> so this star's fate is to disappear off into intergalactic space, completely isolated from everything else, um, for potentially billions upon billions of years until it encounters something else, probably a galaxy a very, very, very long way away. But that's going to be a while. I was quite excited when you talked about this star shooting off into space, <laughs> and then I kind of felt sad for yeah, it. Yeah, it's well, to be fair, it did trigger a, an explosion in its friend, so maybe it had it coming. Anyway, Gaia's going to come up with a number of more exciting discoveries over the remainder of its five-year mission. In reality, it's gone most of the way through its primary mission now. Um, it has uh, consumables on the, uh, the spacecraft to go for another couple of years after it, if it gets a funding uh, extension. But if it does, even if it doesn't, we will still have lots of new data coming in over the course of the next decade or so, because it takes a long time for, us, for this data to be processed. So yes, that is the wonderful world of Gaia. I'm fascinated by all the discoveries that it's made because like you said, a part of its primary mission is just to map these stars. But yep. of course it's found lots of other new things along Absolutely. the way. And no doubt there's probably lots more to come. So that is our two news stories for this month. We've got why Saturn's ravioli-shaped moons came to have the shape they have and Gaia's discoveries in its mission so far. We're going to put our stories uh, to the vote on Twitter. So if you look during the first week of June, we'll have our Twitter poll up. We want you to vote for your favourite news story. And of course, we'll reveal the results at the start of next month's podcast. And so uh, last, last month's podcast, we had two stories. We had the galaxy with no dark matter. And we also had the pulsar with a glitch. Uh, and we had about 20 odd votes altogether. And I hate to say it, but Greg, your story won once again. So we had 59% <laughs> of our voters voting for the galaxy with no dark matter. And in a close second with 41% was the pulsar with a glitch. You can find uh, our podcast on SoundCloud and it's also available on iTunes. So please rate us if you listen on there. You can also find a whole host of our other podcasts, including uh, interviews with other space scientists and even astronauts on SoundCloud. But that's it for this month's podcast. So we'll see you next month for July's Look Up. Mm -hmm.